I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hello and welcome to Off the Beaten Track podcast. I'm your host, Stu Whiffin. It's another week, therefore, it's another episode. And today's episode, I have a special guest, and that special guest is Mr. Stephen Budd. Um, I couldn't believe as I prep for this uh, episode just the amount of huge moments in music that Stephen's been involved with. Um, I'm not going to sort of give you any any hints, but um, you're in for a treat with this podcast because um, he's uh, he's done some magnificent things uh, throughout his career, and we touch on as many of them as we get time to. And uh, and yeah, before we get on with the episode, I'm just going to say um, a big thanks to. Scroobius Pip and everybody at the Distraction Pieces Network. Um, a big thanks uh, to Mr. 76 for producing this podcast. And also, if you enjoy this podcast, um, please go and have a look in the um, the back catalogue. Um, I mean, this, this actual podcast come about um, due to the podcast I recorded with John Webster. Uh, and Stephen happened to, to hear that and, and, and we got talking over that um and so there's a there's a huge back catalogue of um episodes of this where i chat to musicians artists um actors any, anybody within the creative field and uh and yeah i like to sort of dig in on the songs that have um soundtracked their creative journey this far um and also uh if you still can't get enough of it then i also have a patreon page uh, which I upload a radio show to each week where I play some songs and and uh, and have some chat about it. So please feel free to go over and have a look at that. That's over at Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com. Um, yeah, and there's merch and there's all sorts of stuff. So your one-stop shop for everything is off the com. So um, I'm going to get on with this podcast anyway because I've been nattering for too long. Um, please enjoy off the beat and track podcast with Mr. Stephen Budd. I've got an announcement. Save our souls clothing. www.sosclothing.co.uk. Why am I telling you this? Because they're our official sponsor. Yeah, that's right. Go and check them out because their clothing is off the scale. You're going to love it. So they've decided they want to be our sponsor, which is amazing. And what I have to do is I have to tell you about why they're amazing. So here's a little bit of blurb. So they've only been going a year, and they're based in South End on Sea, just up the road from me. They put the company together based on a, a love of tattoos and alternative music, 
And they've worked with some of the greatest artists around the world to produce these items of clothing that are as unique as you lot. All of the designs are printed using biodegradable, sustainable and water-based inks. In addition to that, they only print on garments made by members of Fairwear Foundation. I mean, come on, great clothing and a conscience. Since going live in April last year, they've seen their audience grow massively and are now selling orders all across the world. And they were recognised by Cosmopolitan magazine as one of the best sustainable clothing brands alongside names such as Stella McCartney. I mean, that's quite a first year, right? So, go and check them out because they've put a lot of love into supporting this podcast and I couldn't be happier. What else they've done is they've given you 15% off. So if you head over to www.sosclothing.co.uk, do a bit of shopping, see what you like, throw it in the basket, and then on the way out, put in the discount code BEAT15, B-E-A-T-1-5, and that'll save you 15% off. Amazing, right? www.sosclothing.co.uk Official sponsors of Off The Beat and Track podcast. Let's get back to that podcast. It's Off The Beat and Track podcast on the Distraction Pieces Network. With me, Stu Whiffin. Hello and welcome to Off The Beat and Track podcast. We are at the WeWork building in Devonshire Square today and sitting opposite me is Mr. Stephen Budd. Good morning. Good morning. Second take. We'll try and get it right take this time. Two. The mic was playing <laughs> up in the first one. Um, so we've never met before, no. uh, but um, I watched a, a lengthy uh, documentary on your career yesterday, and, yeah. and it filled in the gaps around the stuff that I knew you'd already done, and uh, but I didn't realise just how... Can you use the word incredible? Your career's been? That's for others to judge, not not for mine. Well, let's go in on it because we're, we're going to talk... My bank manager wouldn't say that. <laughs> well, we're going to talk about your career, obviously, as this um, podcast unfolds, but we always start with track one, which is the song with the greatest ever intro. Well, this track is by somebody who I fell in love with aged 19 and have never fallen out of love with, uh, the legendary fella Anakulapu Kuti, fella Kuti to his friends. Um, the song is Water Get No Enemy, and uh, I think I first heard this when I was 18 or 19, and it led me on a beginning of a journey, actually, which we can talk about shortly. Mm-hmm. Well, l- 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 we might as well do that now, because I'm interested in, in, in your love of, 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 of Fella, because mm-hmm. uh, it, it, in the documentary I watched, well, as soon as you sent this over, uh, I'd, I'd spoke to Sam Duckworth as well. Um, Lovely, uh, Sam. Uh, a, about you and, and, the, and the tracks that you'd sent over. And the first thing Sam said was, he says, Fela Kuti on there. And I was like, right. <laughs> yes, uh, the first track. Um, so I, f- from what I gather, you're an avid collector of uh, of not just music, but memorabilia as well. I know in the documentary, there was lots of pieces of That's right. art and, and, and stuff. That's right. Yeah, my house is a little shrine to Fela. And if you know anything about Fela, you'll understand that the word shrine has particular relevance but yeah no I I, uh, over the years have managed to to find quite a lot of interesting stuff like original artwork and paintings and and books and all sorts of things and and of course going backwards and forwards to Nigeria a number of times have managed to 
get a lot, virtually all, of the original Nigerian pressings for fellow aficionados of all his original albums and yeah. singles. So I also, last year, managed to find the very, very, very first fella single, which is a, it's a 78 um, fella and his High Life Rakers. And apparently I'm the only person in the world with this. So this was a sort of like holy grail moment for me. You're not going to tell me what that cost, are you? No, I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, it wasn't too bad. Um, right. But uh, it would take a lot to part for me to part with it now. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so uh, aside from from, from Felicuti and uh, Morgan, No Enemy, was there any other sort of honourable mentions that you considered for this? For, uh, in terms of uh, intro. greatest intros, mm. goodness me. Um, well, I mean, Miles Davis, you know, a kind of blue, you know, or Jimi Hendrix, Crosstown Traffic. I mm. mean, look, look, Jimmy was the master of intros. Come mm. on. All the Beatles were the master of intros, mm -hmm. but Jimmy, you know, with those guitar intros, yeah. you know, Purple Haze, uh, Voodoo Child, Crosstown Traffic, you know, any number, uh, um, all along the Watchtower, mm. any number of them could have yeah. could have, could have have made it. Voodoo Child's a, a, a solid one. Uh, I remember being eight years or nine years old. No, went right, well, later, later, 10, 10. And buying that single, yeah. you know, and uh, yeah, Jimmy was a very, very, very early on uh, influence for me. I remember, you know, Top of the Pops watching um, him do um, Purple Haze and my mm. mum walking in and going, he must be from New Guinea. <laughs> <laughs> With hair like that, he must be from New yeah. Guinea. I don't think he is, mum. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I fell in love with him at that moment. And I guess I was probably about seven or eight at that time. Mm. Well, just going to quickly go back to uh, to Fela Kuti. How did you discover Fela as an artist? Um, I was sort of a, sort of vaguely aware of him, reading about him in the NME and things like that. Um, he wasn't well known really outside mm. of outside of Nigeria because he really didn't tour much. And then he came over, although he made a couple of his early records in London. Uh, he came over to and he did Glastonbury in eighty. For I think was one of the first sort of awareness points, and at that point I, I think it was '84, but I had a band that I was managing called the Big Sound Authority, and we played Glastonbury, and um, so there was that kind of awareness there. And then somebody gave me a cassette of like, listen to this, you know, because I was getting into Miles Davis at the time, mm -hmm. and. I listened to it and it was just such, it had such depth for me. Yeah. And, you know, and then when you start to investigate it, and I'm sure, you know, you're a fan of music, you're a fan of artists, you want to know more about that particular subject, about who is this man who's making this incredible music. These are anthems, these mm -hmm. are symphonies, you know, each one of these tunes lasts 20 minutes. I mean, you know, he doesn't start singing until the first five sure. minutes. Yeah. Five minutes into the song, you're going like, what? You know, and then of course the brass, uh, arrangements were just sensational and I was a big fan of brass you know and um, that just sounds a bit wrong but anyway <laughs> <laughs> and um, and I kind of just loved it and um, somebody gave me a cassette tape I fell in love with that cassette, uh, uh, that that music I took it away on holiday and and then started buying the records yeah and um, and I've never sort of looked back I'm a bit of a completist I haven't completed it 
getting them all yet. Oh, still? Oh, no, there's still a couple. It's a couple to go. I just refuse to pay the kind of prices yeah. that Discogs wants to sell them for. So I wait to try and find somebody in, in Lagos who, who will dig one out and then... So you're, you're an avid collector of music anyway because the hmm. first phone conversation we had, you yeah. answered the phone and you went, oh, hang on, I'm on eBay, I'm buying a record, I've got to go. <laughs> and that was it. I was like, all right. <laughs> Is that right? Yeah. <laughs> yes, I don't think I got that either. <laughs> I missed out on that one. Um, I do. I'm, I'm a bit obsessive about, you know, uh, about records, about vinyl. And, um, and, and now I'm, you know, one of the things that I'm involved in is, is uh, recording direct to vinyl. So we've started up a little label where we're, we're recording artists direct to vinyl. And funny enough, talking about the Cootie family, one of the first ones I've done is, is Shayun Cootie, a uh, fella's son, with Egypt 80, his band. And we've recorded an album direct to vinyl um, in Amsterdam with a lot of the old equipment that Frank Sinatra had and came from some of it from Capitol Studios in, in LA. And, and this friend of mine has built this incredible studio there. And, and we together we've started up this label and um, and one of the first ones that I thought we should do was Shayun and he wanted to do it, which is great. Wonderful. What's the label called? It's called Night Dreamer and um, the first record's coming out in uh, uh, end of October, in fact, uh, beginning in November and it is Shayun Kuti and Egypt 80. And it's not going to be available digitally, is it? Just it will be available digitally, okay. but it's, you know, it's pr primarily we're doing super high-end vinyl um, it's recorded absolutely live, no overdubs. You know, you rehearse, 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 push play, record direct onto onto disc, and if you screw it up, you, the, the screw up is either okay and you leave it in, or if it's too dramatic, you start again. But you have to keep going until you get the S right performance. Separate you know? tracks for the band all Separ play live. It's it's all live. Yeah, it completely live, mixed live, direct, and you know, normally three two or three songs a side. Obviously, Shane's are a bit longer than uh, yeah. than most, so yeah. a couple of songs per side. And, um, and you know, you record side one, and then, you know, next day you come in and record side two, you Wonderful. know? And it's it's quite an experience. We film it all, and yeah. it's a, a really exciting thing to be involved with. And um, we've got a whole heap of these that we've recorded. We just did Sue George. Uh, they're one-offs. We're not signing people to long-term yeah. contracts or anything like that. It's, it's a series specifically built around the idea of direct-to-disc to recording sure. so that it, you know, it's unrepeatable stuff. So it's for people who are in between contract, you know, in between different labels. So we're doing a lot of the young British jazz things, which is something that I'm very excited about as well. There's, you're probably aware of this kind of jazz explosion that's mm -hmm. happened in the UK uh, over the last couple of years. <coughs> young black kids uh, and white kids forming, you know, 20 or 30 groups that are, it's like punk days all over again, yeah. but it's jazz and it's, and it's left field jazz and it's, it's, you know, jazz in influenced by Sun Ra and John Coltrane. Yeah. So we've been p recording a few of those people and it's a mixture between some of the greats, some of the old time greats who we just feel are, uh, have still got something valid to say sure. and um, some of the brand new acts. It's, it's quite an exciting thing. That's wonderful, mm. mate. Mm. Excellent. Track two, the first song you remember hearing that had an emotional impact on you. Right, well, I have to t take a look and see what... Um, <laughs> good God. <laughs> Obviously, that changed it. I've just seen what I wrote, you know, because okay. it was a couple of months ago or so you asked me this question. Yeah. And obviously that changes from time to time, but yeah. We all know that everybody's song choices will be different on any given day of the week. That's right, right. Well, you got me at that particular okay. moment. I might have a different one today, but that one is, Do You Know The Way To San Jose? Mm. Uh, uh, and it's uh, Dionne Warwick's 
um, version of it, uh, which was the classic version. And I, I just, it was just so impactful, that song for me. Funny enough, she just, she follows me on Twitter. I don't know why. I, but it was quite funny to be followed by Dion Warwick. I mean, that's that's a good day in the office. That isn't was it? yeah, <laughs> because because that song is so so sort of deep, and I think it goes to everybody's soul in a sense. It, it's you know, it's a song about uh, yearning to, to to have your impact on the world. And when that song came out, I guess 1970 or something. You know, I was I was only 10 or 11 years old, but. Um, it was. It had a real lasting impact on me, and, and and I've loved it ever since. Melodically, it's amazing. Production-wise, incredible, and her voice on it is exemplary. Her voice is always exemplary. It is it's wonderful. Yeah. Um, it affected you emotionally. How? What was the emotional? Uh, what was the emotions? Um, it's got a. It, it's got this yearning quality um, to it. You know, it's like. Um, it's about home. It's about the safety of home, you know, and, you know, you might venture out into the world, but there's always a place for you somewhere, you know, and depending on how um, rooted in that somewhere you are, it's a reminder for you about that particular place. And, and you know, I don't know why certain songs bring you to sort of the verge of tears. You know, we've all probably got you know, three or four of them to do it. That's one of them, yeah. you know. Um, funnily enough, I was uh, last night hit on another one that I'd completely forgotten about and hadn't heard for like 15 years and went, Jesus, that does it to me too, which was Harvest for the World by the Isley Brothers. It took you straight back to It when was like, bang, you know. Yeah. It was so sort of, it reaches a point of time. I'm not saying that anything was dramatic going on in my life at that time, although thinking about it, it probably was. But... Um, but it, it's, it, it, it pulls that together. And I think music has that ability to reach, bypass your brain and go straight to your emotional cortex yeah. and connect, you know. And that's why we love it so much. And that's why we, we're continually wanting to find those pieces of music that do that to yeah. us and open us up in that kind of way. It's psychotherapy. So where was home then, Stephen, I born? grew up in southwest London, Kingston, Richmond, that area, um, until I was like 15, 15 years old. And, and uh, but you know, my musical education from that period really came from the, from the pubs that I used to hang out in and DJ in when I was 14 years old, DJing uh, in a pub called the Jolly Brewers in Kingston, which right. is a right old rot hole but it was filled with these amazing hippies who were total music lovers and they were the guys who who started the Windsor Free Festivals oh, right. right so I ended up hanging out at the Windsor Free Festival aged 14 and before I knew it I, I was stage managing you know the the, 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 the follow-on festival which was the Watchfield Free Festival um, when I was 15 years old and um, quite an extraordinary sort of beginning you sure. know of a musical career that came out of really just turning up at the pub and going can i play some records in the pub you know just to go back a little bit further though yeah was there music on at home when you was, was little um was there music yeah i mean not much i mean my dad had a cassette recorder which i kind of purloined and he had frank sinatra um uh herbie uh Moss, what's his name? Herbie, oh God, A&M Records. 
when um, South American stuff and a few other things. And then I bought a record. I had a record player, or I was given a record player for my tenth or eleventh birthday. And obviously, I started buying singles. You know, in fact, I was buying singles out of my pocket money before I had a record player. So I had records to take round to friends' houses. Yeah. And the very, 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 very first record I ever bought was um, Ball of Confusion by The Temptations. Okay. Which, if I look back on that now, is absolutely, you know, lyrically, musically, groove, everything about that song, you know, is just like a perfect representation of what's going on in the world right yeah. now. You know, and of course, that time, that period, it was the Vietnam War mm -hmm. and, and, you know, the consciousness movement the black consciousness movement in america and the watts riots and all of that kind of stuff which the temptations were singing about norman whitfield produced it what a record yeah um and but yeah that was the kind of like you know the birth of 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 really getting into music and of course when you're really small watching the beatles on top of the pops yeah you mentioned uh, when you started DJing in pubs and then all of a sudden you're you're helping out at festivals and you're playing records at festivals yeah. at a very young age. Yeah. And you've also spoke about being a, a fanatic for collecting music and that. Was you obsessing already at a very young age with music? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. It was the, uh, you know, um, oops, um, the... Um, in those days, it's not a cliche to say that they're, they're you know, what were, the, what were our choices? You know, yeah, our choices yeah. were, you know, um, comics, a bit of telly, uh, football, uh, and music. Yeah. <laughs> and um, and whilst I love football and all the all of those other things, of course, uh, music was the thing that, that that connected with my soul. Yeah. Okay. Well. Let's talk about school uh, and ju just go cool. back there before we pick back up on uh, on a yeah a career that's already exploded at fourteen years of age, which is uh, impressive. Um, what is the song that reminds you of your time at school, Stephen? A song that reminds <laughs> well, um, again, that would change every week, but but uh, the one that occurred to me is a bit cliche, but boy, what a cliche! I'm happy to be associated with, which is Steely Dan. Uh, my old school, surprisingly enough, uh, one of the greatest uh, guitar solos I think of all time, mm -hmm. and I still have a massive, massive love in my heart for everything to do with Steely Dan. I think yeah. one of the greatest groups of all time in terms of their musical uh, uh, exploration and what they were trying to do production-wise and songwriting-wise and everything. Uh, but this particular song. Yeah, that just went straight to the heart of it. It was like, I can't wait to get out of school. I mean, I was thinking of doing Alice Cooper Schools Out, which again was one of the first records I bought. But yeah. I, I thought, you know, this one to me uplifts me in a way that still to this day, that kind of, you know, screw you, I'm never coming back to my old yeah, school. Yeah, yeah, Because, like, you know, I really hated school. You know, and I just Why was that? Get out. I went to, it was just oppressive. I went to a, a I went to a private school with like prefects who would beat you, uh, just you know pervy schoolmasters who wanted to do other things to you. All right, it was that kind of scenario, sure. you know. So I, I it didn't really didn't want to be there, and uh, everything exciting was happening outside of school. You know, um, what did you want to be at school? 
I wanted to be in music, you know, I wanted to be a musician, you know, I wanted to, I was playing in bands when I was 14 or so, had, you know, I had an electric guitar, the kid down the street from me was a much better guitarist than me, and we used to play together, and then, uh, and then he built his own PA system, and then eventually we started taking that PA system out, you know, and, and renting it out to people, and, and I went along with him, and then learned how to, you know, mix the sound and do everything, so that was, you know, that was before I left school, yeah. And I just, I mean, you know, I was waiting for the day I was 16 so that I could just walk out of school and, and leave. But effectively, I kind of left school the summer before I was 16 because I was already sort of getting into roadieing and, and stuff like that. So, Was you ambitious? I don't know if I was ambitious. I was just grateful that anybody would allow me to have anything to do with music. You know, yeah. I didn't have a... I'm going to do this or I'm going to do that or a goal. Uh, it was just like, how can I survive? Um, how can I have something to do with music that, you know, so that I feel connected to that? And uh, and I'll do anything that I can to do that, you know? And, you know, my route in was through, was through roadieing, you know? Uh, literally, I mean, well, I, I was DJing and then I did that. Um, stage management at the Watchfield Free Festival in 1975 when we had, you know, uh, Hawkwind, Gong, Traffic, all of these people turning up into this field outside yeah. uh, Swindon. Uh, huge bands at that it point. It was huge. And it was yeah. a completely free festival set up by these guys in the pub. Yeah. You know, and, you know, 50,000 people turned up. It was a two-week-long festival in the in the, <laughs> one of the hottest summers. The summer of 75 was the hottest summer you could possibly imagine. And it was just before punk, right? And so it was an incredible moment, you know, and the 101ers played, you know. Right. So, you know, Joe Strummer and the 101ers, who then were living in a squat in... Um, in Maida Vale. Yeah. Um, and, you know, yeah, I, you know, I saw that they were the, the proto punk band, yeah. you know? Um, so at that point, I guess, so punk would have hit when you was what? 16. I mean, that's a 16, 17, 16, 17. Yeah. That's a good age to be when punk 17, drops. Yeah. Yeah. It was. Yeah. How, how was that for well, you? Well, I was a dyed in the wool hippie. Right. Okay. <laughs> so I had long hair down to my waist. Right. And but I was getting roadieing gigs for well the first gig that I ever had as a as a as a roadie was for for Motorhead because what had happened was I'd I'd roadied and been the sort of stage manager for one of a better word at at Watchfield and Hawkwind played and it was one of the last gigs that that Lemmy Lemmy, had done yeah. with with Hawkwind and the guy whose PA system it was. Uh, was the manager of this band called the Half Human Band, so it was HHBPA, and he asked me to come out and roadie for when Lemmy called him to say, "I've got a new band together. I've left Hawkwind. I've got a new band together, but I've stolen all of Hawkwind's gear. Can you come and set it up for me?" Yeah, because <laughs> he'd literally gone to the lockup and nicked the gear. Brilliant. And um, and the, he said, "I've got a gig, and we haven't really rehearsed, but we're going to do it. It's at the Roundhouse, supporting Greenslade, I think it was." And the, the guy called me up, called up my mum and said, give me, give me a call. And um, I got this message to give him a call. And he said, look, you know, five quid to come up and turn up the roundhouse to, to roadie for, for Lemmy's band. Right. And, um, and that was the very first Motorhead gig. And, uh, and then the next day or the day after, he said, right, well, we're going to do our own show. It's, it's at the Winning Post in Twickenham. Yeah. And uh, which was a pub. <clears throat> and I went down there, and in the sound check, um, I mean, there was a 
there was a, a Dexian stage, right? So, you know, like shelving that you have in the garage. Right. Really bad, right? With planks going across the Dexian. Right. And, you know, that was the stage. Terrible. And I remember crawling under the stage to put, plug some um, yeah. amps in and in the sound check and Lemmy put his foot through one of the planks and it went into my back and cut my back open. And... Um, I got out, I was like, fucking hell, you know, <laughs> and, and it needed stitches. And he drove me to the, to, to, to the Twickenham Hospital and we got some stitches, came Brilliant. back, no chance for a sound check, straight into the gig. There was 200 Hells Angels. The gig was for Hells Angels, right? And it was like, it was Larry Wallace from the Pink Fairies on guitar, Lucas Fox on drums, who wasn't a very good drummer, but a lovely bloke, and, and Lemmy. And it was just banging out some Pink Fairies songs and, and they might have done, eh? How old was you? I was 15, I was 16 at this point. That's just, incredible. Just 16, yeah. And then, um, and from that point, it was like going off and, and roading at the Vortex yeah. and and the, you know, the, the Greyhound in Fulham Palace Road and um, and the various punk clubs around for, you know, whatever bands were coming through. Because yeah. I was the one with long hair doing the sound. They all thought I knew what I was doing. I hadn't yeah. got a fucking clue. <laughs> but they go like, oh, you know, he's a hippie. He must know what he's yeah. doing because the punks didn't have a clue. You know, they could barely tune up the guitars, you know. So it was um, it was from that, that was the kind of, you know, and I was like, I'll do anything to be around this. You know? Yeah. Hello. I've interrupted the podcast again, haven't I? Sorry, it won't take a sec. All I want to say is the songs that we're talking about in this podcast if we can't play them, it's just because of the regulations regarding playing licensed music and such. So if you want to hear the songs, just go over to Spotify and search Off The Beat and Track Podcast and you can... I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Listen to all the songs because I've put playlists up for each of these. If you can't find it on there, I'll send links on all the social media accompanying each episode. So you've just got to press that one button and you can go through and you can enjoy all the songs that our guest picks. Anyway, I'll shut up, get back to the podcast. See you on the other side. And so when 
when things started to sort of really explode in, in the sort of punk scene, yeah. was you still roading or was you starting to kind of forge other avenues within the industry? Did you know what you wanted to be sort of doing then or was you just sort of going with really what was... I didn't really know, but I did know I love being around bands and I love working with them. And the, I had, at that point, um, my best mate from school, the only one who I still... Uh, friends with from school in fact he's the only one who, from school who I'm still friends with today yeah. like a long time later um, he lived in in uh, Rains Park in southwest London and on his street was this kid right who was this guitarist who used to just sit in the street and play and we could not believe how good he was right I mean we were just like where has this guy come and he was like into he was into like the Stooges and he yeah. was into he was into Sabbath and, you know, all this rock stuff, which we didn't think was very cool, actually, because I was like Jimi Hendrix and yeah. Miles Davis, you know, <laughs> ridiculously. And, um, but, he, but he was so good. And he had, he'd, his, he'd formed a band called The Outsiders. And they were a, a very early punk band. In fact, they were the very first punk band to make an album. Oh, really? um, funded by his dad, <laughs> very uncool. Yeah, very and punk. It came out very punk, <laughs> but it came out before the Damned, and it came out before everybody else. And it was, you know, it was really good. And then he ended up. Iggy came over and toured, and then he ended up playing with Iggy and all sorts of things. But then he formed a band. Then he he he, yeah. Then basically he come up with this experiment. He's got this very early drum machine, and he's been playing around with this drum machine and. I would then go in and play guitar with him. And, and I said, we should make a record. You know, we should record this. This is good. You know, no, nobody's done a punk record with a drum machine. Yeah. And so I got like 50 quid and we went into Elephant Studios. And in three hours, we cut an EP, me on rhythm guitar, him on lead guitar and vocal. He'd written the songs, I, you know. And, and the band was called Second Layer. And we put out... Uh, basically, I said, I'm going to put this out. I want to start a little record label. Okay. And at this point, I, I'd saved up some money from roadieing. I've done, you know, a lot of roadie bands like X-Ray Specs and, and you know, The Police and various other people very, very early on. And then, but I saved up some, some money. I thought, I'm going to press up a record. You know, it was the early days of DIY. And recorded it with in Elephant Studios with a guy called Nick. Um, I forget what his surname is now. But anyway, uh, and then I had to go and find a factory to go and press it. Went and got it pressed, then realized I needed labels. <laughs> had to go find someone to press Because you couldn't do it in one stop. Yeah. In those days, you had to go to different... And then realized that I needed a sleeve, and then realized I needed a design on the sleeve, so I had to screen print them onto the already folded sleeves. And eventually, there I was. I had 500 copies of this single. Was you, know. you doing that? At that point, to make money, or because no. you wanted to do it? No, I wanted to have a record. It was like, you've got to have a record. Yeah. You know, this is like vinyl, you know. Yeah. And um, I didn't really know what we were going to do or anything like that, but I just it was an experiment, you know. And um, and then I took those a box of the records down to... I thought, I've got to sell the record now, and where do I go? There was like a couple of shops, Beggar's Banquet in Kingston. Yeah. And... Uh, and then I took, went to Rough Trade on, on Portobello, you know, and um, went downstairs, saw Jeff, who was in the basement, as he always was, listening to records and deciding what he was going to buy. And he had his big afro. And uh, he went, what you got? And I went this. And he listened to it. He went, 
that's great. He said, I'll take it. I, I, I said, great. It's like, well, hey, you know. And um, he said, how many copies you got? I said, I've got 500. And he says, I'll take the lot. I was, what? <laughs> I'll take the lot. And he took the lot. And because um, he had a distribution network. And so he was sending to all the little shops in yeah. Manchester, Liverpool and everywhere that would stock punk records. And um, this was in 79, 1979. And he took the lot. And the next week it was in the, the Sounds Independent chart, number two. And I'm going, and I'm rushing off to the factory trying to as quickly as possible press another thousand of them. Yeah. You know. Anyway, so it was in the charts for like a week or two weeks. But I thought, and that that gives you, a, you've got the bug at that point. Yeah. And so then I started thinking, let's put out some other records, you know. And for your, by yourself or for no, other artists? No, other, other artists. And, sure. And I'd seen a band in, in, it was the beginning of the mod revival. Sure. And there was all these bands, the Merton Parkers yeah. and all this kind of stuff. The, of course, the, it was the jam that. that kicked it all off. Yeah. And we were big jam fans. And we used to go and see them at the, at the pub in Hammersmith. Yeah. The red cow and uh, there were all these kids these shepherds bush boys likely lads who were mods and they were forming little bands you know yeah. it was a real scene and what, there was this guy Tony Burke and he formed this band called The Directions right and they always used to play down at the, the Greyhound um, and Jazz Summers manager of Note who later of course became the manager of Wham and mm -hmm. George Michael and Snow Patrol and legendary manager yeah. right who died unfortunately a few years ago he was the booker of the of the um of the of the greyhound and also the clarendon down the road and he but he was a, he was a he was a he was a radiologist at hammersmith hospital next door <laughs> he was booking the bands in his lunchtime, going onto the phone, the, the, he had the phone, the, the number you would call would be the number in the hospital. That's amazing. And Jazz Summers would, <laughs> it's like. Yeah. That's great. But anyway, so, you know, he would book these bands and then we would go and do the PA. He would like, we need a PA, blah, blah, yeah. blah. So go in and do the PA at the Greyhound. And this band, The Directions, would play and they had all these fanatical followers. So I said, let's go make a record. And they were really rough. I mean, yeah. they were rough. Let's go make a record, you know. And we went and made a record with them and again, you know, pressed up a thousand copies of it. It sold out pretty quickly. Uh, there was a, the, every, every mod band who had put out a single would sell, sell out at, those, at that point. Yeah. It wasn't particularly, it was particularly any good, but it was, it was all right. And, um, but they were great. They were, I loved them. His dad, Tony's dad was a real Shepherd's Bush character. He was in, in and out of, uh, um, Wormwood Scrubs, yeah, <laughs> for various reasons. Yeah, uh, we won't go into that. But anyway, but he was a real character. But Tony was this amazing intellect, you know, a six foot two giant and incredible soul singer. And the directions we went and played round, and I, I ended up managing them because basically the bands didn't have any managers. Yeah, and then and I ended up managing this band. I didn't know what the hell I was doing, but that was my first experience of managing a band. And then the other band that I had was a band called The Sound, and um, that was, I would say, where things started to get a bit professional, you know. And I'd found this band, recorded a single. John Peel started playing it. He loved it. Um, Paul Morley started writing about it in Enemy and I'm suddenly going blimey you know um, I better learn how to do this I better learn thing. how to do that <laughs> and I hadn't got a clue there wasn't any books there wasn't any courses there wasn't sure. anybody there was nobody mentoring me unfortunately I, I look back now and think god what I could have done with that But was you confident though? 
I was, it was all about confidence. <laughs> it was about, you know, the gift of the gab and that kind of thing, really. Yeah. That's what it, what drove it. But that band would play, were playing, you know, we, we were playing all the time and they were so good. I mean, they were sensational. This is the kid on the guitar sat on the side of the street. The right. The with. This was his proper band, right? And oh my God, they were great. And anyway, I went and recorded an album, cost me 500 quid, back to Elephant Studios. We did it in like three days. Got the album and all of a sudden record companies are ringing up, you know, and they we were selling out, you know, the Moonlight Club and the Marquee and blah, 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 blah. And so I was I booking mean, what, all the What sort of capacity were these venues then? What, 250, 300. Sure. And, but they were sweaty really amazing nights yeah. you know and I look back on those some of the best gigs I've ever been to to this day yeah and uh, and I my, the dividing line between me as manager and me and fan was completely blurred I was an yeah. utter fan you know of the band that I was managing yeah so anyway one of the people who turned up at one of the gigs one day was um, this American guy A&R guy f for Corova Records which was the new label that Warners had set up to be independent uh, which had got Echo in the Bunnyman right and um, he dragged his boss down Rob Dickens and they went this is great you know and what have you recorded I said well I've just finished making an album and they went well play us the album I went in and played them the quarter inch oh so you hadn't released it oh, you no, were just no, sitting no, on yeah, it played right. the quarter inch tapes of the album I was about to release it yeah. I was going to start the plan of just doing it it was that just at that cusp moment heard, they heard the record and went we want to sign this and they gave me 30 grand you know <laughs> and I was like it cost me 500 quid you know so all of a sudden we had a business yeah. you know and, and the band you know and you're a legit manager now aren't you you just I, made 30 grand but I didn't know how any of this, <laughs> this sat together or any of it worked you know yeah and um, that was the beginning of it really and um, and then you know I, I spent you know we spent a long time sort of touring that band and getting them out there and, and then yeah anyway that's another whole story but that was the beginning of managing. Okay. So I'm going to move things forward a little bit um, because I want to know, well, I, I guess I, I want to talk about your time in Clubland. Um, but I guess in the industry that, that you, you know, you, you work in clubs and, and events are, are, are something that are always going to be there, right? Yeah. Um, <coughs> I hope so. <laughs> uh, so I'll, I'll tell you what, I'll, I'll ask you the question anyway. What, what, what was the, the, the track that soundtrack your years in Clubland? Gosh, okay. So, um, <laughs> right, I had to look at your piece of paper yep. to remember what I'd written because that could have been any one of a thousand, yeah. couldn't it? Um, but, I, you know, I, I went on holiday to... Uh, in fact, I wasn't on holiday. I had been... Six for six months, I'd lived on a little island called Eos in Greece, and I was living in a cave. <laughs> Why? <laughs> it's a long story, <laughs> but I was living in a cave because you could, yeah. you know. And there was one club on the island, and there was one, in fact, there was the island didn't really have electricity. When so was this, Stephen? What year? This was 70, this was 79, 79, okay. 78, 78, yeah. And just before, yeah, you know, it was in and out of roadieing, and then I went to Greece for six months. I got, a, funny enough, I got a job working for the American Forces Network as a radio presenter for kids' shows teaching American Air Force kids Greek 
how. I, I, I don't even know, you know, except I was doing the English parts. Right. But that, again, that's another rather interesting story. But anyway, for me. Um, but I ended up then taking off, uh, you know, I had three months in, in Athens and then three months in, in, on this island, um, Eos. And there was a club on that and I discovered disco, right? Which was like, I would never tell anybody at home I was into disco, do you know what I mean? But I discovered it and I just discovered how much I loved it. Was it already a dirty word in the UK, disco? I think so. It was definitely a dirty word amongst the hippies and the punks. They were like, no, you've got to be kidding, right? And I was going, well, actually, I really like this. And um, and, um, the the other moment had, funnily enough, been at a free festival in Wales with members of Gong, Mm-hmm. And actually, Gong were really quite funky. You yeah. know, where you listen to them and they like got a funky backbeat yeah. and a funky bass line, and y- it wasn't a huge transition yeah. to more the more interesting side of disco. Just if if you can, uh, can you just explain to to listeners that might not be aware of Gong like a little bit about them? Because um, so many people have come on this podcast and mentioned Gong. Is it? Yeah, <laughs> I, I had Graham Massey from 808 State who was in a Gong tribute band when he was about 15. Right. And so all these people just keep referencing Gong. Right. And, uh, and I feel like for, for those that maybe aren't aware, just a little kind of snapshot well, I mean, of, of if, what okay. they... I mean, Gong have, funny enough, become incredibly influential and important on a variety of different musical styles, but ultimately leading to, you know, Steve Hillage, who was the, one of the main guys in Gong, forming System 7, which was one of the very early sort of rave bands. Yep, and, and rave, they influenced rave culture, which, which is why I imagine that Graham was influenced mm-hmm. by them. And I didn't, I didn't know that, what you just told me. But Gong were a real hippie band stretching back to the late 60s, but who came to fruition in the early 70s. And I was obsessed by them. I would follow them around. I saw them, they would go and play with Can. So Mm. I suppose there was an element of where sort of psychedelia meets kraut rock meets um, weird hippie nonsense but it was great hippie nonsense and they had their own mythology and they all lived together in a squat and they released uh, a lot of records but three main albums which were a trilogy of albums which were all about an acid trip right so for those of us who had partaken in that particular totally illegal kids yeah uh, right of passage yeah. we resonated with that but the music is off the chain still is today yeah. if you listen to it and the quality of the, the bass playing guitaring and everything was sensational anyway they were very influential um, and you know Virgin were putting out the records at the time Virgin Records in the early 70s and they went on to influence a lot of other um, groups and stuff that had come yeah. out of it, but they were the antithesis of of punk, and yet they weren't. They yeah. morphed later on into a punk band yeah. in 1977, and they went out on tour with the punk groups. Yeah, and it's like, how does that work? Yeah, you know, um, yeah, that was gone. Brilliant. Yeah, that was all. Just, that's that's, yeah, that's okay. great because great hippie nonsense. I think that was a brilliant way to describe them. <laughs> right. um, yeah, uh, Tom Brown. Gosh, yes, Tom Brown funking for Jamaica. Um, what you know? Again, most of the music that I really resonate to has got an emotion, has got a joyousness, or something that has a soul center. You know, it doesn't matter. You know what the genre of music is. Soul's got to run through the middle of it. This to me does. It's just got this joyousness of a. It sounds like a street party come alive, mm-hmm. right? And I remember being 
falling massively in love with the girl who sung the lead vocal of this. Yeah. I just thought she was the most gorgeous thing I'd ever seen in my life. Yeah. And uh, and I think that had something to do with it. <laughs> but it was a very, very emotionally connective uh, record for me and was, again, sort of right in the middle of that kind of club culture thing. So, you know, in one hand, I was managing these kind of rock bands and at, and at night I was sneaking off to go to sort of like the various discos around London yeah. and, uh, and, and and dance my arse off. What did you want from clubbing? <laughs> what does anybody want from clubbing? Oh, you tell me. Uh, um Gosh, it, well, it was, you know, it was a whole variety of things. It was a way, it was just, you know, it was a physical release just to be able to go and dance. I love dancing and it was a physical, uh, f that element of it was really important. Meeting girls was really important. Um, and, you know, it was, it was glamorous, you know, it, it had, it had glamour in it, you know, uh, at that point. And, um... It, it was also sort of a bit sort of, it was a bit naughty. Yeah. You know, so it provided all of those things, yeah. which is what every young man wants. Was you getting the same, the same sort of release from, you know, going and dancing to Chic or whatever at a disco as you would from jumping around at a punk gig? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, completely. I mean, one had more aggression than another. Sure. And... uh it's funny looking back at the punk stuff at the now because you, you know obviously in his, with historical hindsight and yeah. you know the billion books that have all been written about it but being there at the time it was just like what the fuck is going on it's yeah. like why are these people riot why are they spitting yeah. you know it's like what you know what is this riot about yeah. you know and i i've just had a vivid memory of being in the roxy or the vortex I think it was the Vortex with roadieing for um, Wayne County and the electric chairs yeah. who were supporting Generation X yeah. and Keith Moon and uh, Pete Townsend walking into the back of the club and standing there and watching this riot kick off. And they must have felt right at home, actually. Yeah. That must have, they would have gone like, this is... This is Shepherd's Bush, 1965. Completely, <laughs> yeah. You know, so they were standing there as this was all kicking off, and I was sort of at the side of the stage, desperately trying to hold the monitors onto the front. <laughs> you know, but did it? You know, even through sort of doing stuff with with, with Motorhead and 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 stuff like that. When when that moment come where you're there and Billy Idol's on stage doing his thing with Generation, like, did it feel like something was happening? Absolutely, and what's interesting is in hindsight when we see all the documentaries, it, it looks like this huge. But it was uh, small, right? And and but it did feel like you were in the epicenter. It you know you went like wow, I'm in, I'm here. Yeah, because there was that kind of like people had to get into the shows. Yeah, you know it's like I've got to be in that show. Sure. You know I remember like the clash at the Lyceum. You know you've got to be in that show, uh, whatever it took. Mm. <laughs> you know. Um, so there was that, I mean, I, and it was, obviously there was a lot of press coverage of it, but sure. it was small, it was a small scene, you know, it was London basically yeah. and some stuff in Manchester, but it was pretty small. Um, but, and, but then I look back personally and think that mo those moments 
led me to being always to want to be in that moment. Yeah. So I've subsequently, and even now, you know, with with what's going on with the the London jazz left field London jazz scene, which to me feels like punk all over again yeah. in a very positive way. It's very conscious, very positive, not destructive, but very inclusive, but it's also very underground. It's coming overground a bit now mm-hmm. with, you know, even acts being nominated for the Mercury's yeah. and stuff. But, you know, that whole kind of left field jazz thing resonates to me. And it's, again, it was a bunch of kids doing it for themselves. Great. And, those, and I want, you know, I, I should be embarrassed to say this at my advanced uh, years, but now I, I want to be part of that. You yeah. know, I want to be still going to those things, and it's very exciting to find them. And in you know, some sweaty little basement in Dalston, yeah. and walk in and go like, "This is it," you know. And you know, you're in the middle of something, you know, which is just and it, which is just uber cool. Yeah. Now I think it's uber cool. It yeah. mean that the rest of the world does. Yeah. But I mean, it's interesting that it, you know, the jazz thing has been picked up on. You know. Yeah. It's exciting. Um, picking back up on your career now. Yeah. So we've we've, we've kind of you, you've managed the bands uh, in the kind of second wave of the of the mod scene, um, and then you'd you'd obviously signed them. <laughs> you'd lived in a cave for six months. Yeah. Um, am I right then that a, a little bit around, maybe a little bit after this, you 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 kind of start to then work with producers. Yes. Uh, well, basically, the uh, the band, the Directions, who was the mod band I was talking to, they morphed into another band called the Big Sound Authority. Yeah. And uh, they had success, right? W- they did have yeah. success, and basically, I was working my ass off managing this band. I was even writing the bass lines, helping. And um, big, they were big. It was basically the same band as the Directions, but with an added brass section and a, and a, a keyboard player and a female vocalist right. coming doing duets with the male vocalist with Tony. Uh, her name was Julie Hadwin. She was incredible. She was a checkout girl from Tesco's in Watford who was half Chinese but just had one of the great soul voices. Yeah. Anyway, so. Um, We'd recorded some demos. Paul Weller had had fallen in love with the band. We'd gone and done some dates with the Style Council. There was a little bit of a buzz building. And um, we got signed by MCA Records. And MCA, which is universal now, mm-hmm. MCA didn't really know what to do with them. But I said, you know, I'm, I kind of know what to do here. And... So now you know what you're doing. Well, I, you know, <laughs> I kind of knew what to do in terms of how to reach an audience, sure. right? And on the marketing side, you know, and it was like, okay. And what I did was um, came up with this plan where we went out on tour with on this sort of style council thing. And we were playing to, you know, a lot of people every night as the support act. And I went, me and the was road... Was this around the Red, red Wedge time? Yeah, and yeah, that? all that yeah. kind of period. And then... The, the road manager and me would go out into the crowd each night after the band had played and we'd got the gear off the stage and we'd go out and hand out thousands of little flyers and the flyers said, send us your name, address and telephone number and we'll send you a free flexi disc. A flexi disc. Do you remember flexi discs? Of course. And so seven inch single but was bendy plastic. Yeah. See through. Yeah. You know? Anyway, so we got like 15,000 of these things back that were posted back to us right 
It's saying, please send us the free FlexiDisc. So, of course, we had 15,000 names, addresses, and telephone numbers. Incredible. Of the fans. So this was like direct marketing. And so what I did was I said to MCA, who were not really that interested in the band. Yeah. And I said, because they had Musical Youth and Nick Kershaw. Yeah. Right? The most uncool label of all time. Yeah. And they went, and I said, look, I want a, a room with some telephones in it. And I want to hire that for a week. So I need 10 telephones for a week. And I got the whole band in and the road manager and the brass section. And, and we set up charts on the walls. And we called every one of those 15,000 people. Of course, you know, there were, in those days, there was no mobile phones. Yeah. And it was like, Dave will be back at three o'clock. Right. Here's the three o'clock calls. Call him. And we would tell them where to go and buy the record. Right, so they got their free, and they were so blown away by the fact that we're getting a call from the band straight out to buy it. Right, they went, and they we've never had a band call us. They went, and the record went straight into number ten. Right, and MCA couldn't believe it. Yeah, so of course that and that that was you know a moment. You know, and then and then then you're on top of the pops. Yeah, you know, and I remember. Like it was, I get, oh God, well, I can't remember which one, who, who was it presenting? To, the one who always had the really naff jumpers, Powell, Peter, Peter Powell. Powell. Peter yeah. Powell was presenting to top of the pole, and we had made for him a custom made Big Sound Authority jumper. Nice. Right? And we gave it to him, and he wore it on top of the pops. <laughs> Don't miss a trick, mate. There you go. <laughs> Wonderful. And, and, uh, and those, that was the days. I can't remember what the question was now. <laughs> Production. I wanted to know about... Oh, you, yeah. You, How you we got into that? So we got, in, got into that because then I had to make an album with them, and I thought we need a producer. Um, uh, who Do I know who's... A, I didn't know any producers. I thought, well, what are my favourite records? You know, of like... And I, would, and, and, um, and I was a mad fan of... of uh, of David Bowie, particularly of the the soul period, David. I mean, I love all of David. Yeah. Who doesn't? But the soul period, David Bowie, and uh, and I said like Tony Visconti, and I and then I sort of found you know Tony Visconti's on Dean Street, MCA Records are on Brewer Street. So I walked round the corner onto Dean Street, knocked on the door of Good Earth Studios, said, uh, "Is Tony here?" <laughs> no. Uh, or he is, but he's not, you know, you can fuck off. Yeah. Um, but I went, well, I'd like to play him this band, right? And they went, well, give us a cassette, you know. And I said, look, it's on MCA Records and we want him to produce. Yeah. Anyway, the next thing I know, a few hours later, I get a call from Tony Viscott. Can I come around and see you? I was like, okay. <laughs> and he turned up in my tiny little office in Queen's Park. And, um, and, he, and he went, I love this band. This is, a gra- this is great. I want to produce them. And so... During the period of the production, I was in the studio every day, and we kind of just hit it off. And he was going through some sort of, not emotional crisis, but he was going through like, he was feeling a bit overwhelmed. He had this studio. It was like the first SSL studio in the yep. world. So the, the costs of running this thing were out off the chain. And he asked, you know, we, we sort of got on very well. And then he said, well, will you come in and run my studio? And manage me you know and I wasn't really making any money from managing the band despite having her here mm. so I thought well I'll try and do both and I came in and, and started working in the studio and uh, I had a little office behind the control room there and with we, Tony Visconti with Tony Visconti watching him make all these incredible records and, and then sort of wander into my office for a chat in the middle of when things were going wrong or you know or what do we do now it's like how, you know and it was an experience, you know. And at Just that, a bit. Yeah. 
<laughs> and of course, again, you didn't kind of realise just quite what an experience yeah. it was. But I look back now and go like, yeah. And then uh, at that time, what, what, what was you privy to? What what stuff was he recording around about? Oh them? my god, we were doing what we did. You two. Uh, the, the Smiths, Tina Turner, because I was going out and finding him gigs. Um, we did the Moody Blues, uh, which was quite an experience. I've got a few stories about the Moody Blues in yeah. the studio. Oh my God. Um, I'll tell you one quick one. <laughs> okay. just, I, I would get there very early in the morning make sure the studios was all sorted I out. I love the but fact but you've skimmed over you two, Tina Turner and the Smiths, <laughs> and you've got straight to the Moody Blues. Well, anyway, so I'm in the, in the shit, and then, then I would be so knackered by kind of lunchtime or early afternoon, I'd have yeah. to go and have a lie down, right? I, I need an hour's kip, right? Yeah. And I would normally go into, there was a little sort of uh, band bit and just like lie down under one of the tables, right? Anyway, I went in and lie down, you can see what's coming, lie down under the table, Went fast asleep, woke up after an hour and I heard people talking and then I look round and there's all these feet sat around me. I'm under the table and it's the Moody Blues having a meeting about how how they're going to sack one of the band members. No way! And I'm thinking, fuck, do I just lie here and listen to this? Or just go like, <laughs> uh, hello? <laughs> You got to see Oh my god. <laughs> what did you do? I had I got up and went, guys, I haven't heard a thing. And they were like, the look on their faces. <laughs> I thought, because I table. can't lie there for the whole hour. Yeah. Anyway, so and, and that was hilarious. And then another time there was a lot happened with the Moody Blues in the studio. Another time we got busted by the Vice Squad because we had a pawn shop upstairs and they were duplicating videos. And they thought we were the people duplicating the videos. So I went, no, we're a recording studio, right? <laughs> and they and the Vice Squad come downstairs and they walk into the into the into the uh, lounge and see the Moody Blues roadies copying videos of <laughs> Superman and things like that so that they could take them on the road right cool. and they went oh yeah so you're not doing it <laughs> <laughs> oh god and then uh, one other little story about the studio though was we were, do, we were doing Terence Trent Derby we did the the um, the, big, the big album Hardline according to him. and and Martin Ware who I then later went on to manage he produced that didn't he he did mm. was producing it and it was being mixed. And and they were and Martin wasn't there, but they were mixing Wishing Well, and and it started on the Friday. And I said, you know, whatever happens, you've got to be out Sunday morning because I've got the cult coming in on Monday morning, and the cult do not mess about, right? And they will beat the crap out of me if if the studio isn't ready. Yeah. And anyway, so I came in Sunday morning. They're still there mixing, and they went oh, another few hours, another few hours. We need another few hours. And I, w- I was like cleaning up the studio, went away, came back at about 11 p.m. And they're like, they're still in there. And they're going, no, we need another. And I went, listen, I'm coming back at five o'clock tomorrow morning. You have to be finished, right? The cult are turning up at eight, nine. If, you know, shit will kick off if, if, if you're not finished. Yeah. And I turn up like six o'clock in the morning. They were still going and there was no way they were going to finish. And I went, you told me you were going to finish. And they went, we're not finished and we've got to keep going. And I went, you can't keep going. You've got to stop now, right? And anyway, I said, oh, you've got half an hour. The cult then turned up, right? They walked in and went, what the hell's going on? And I went, don't worry, they're just leaving now and it'll take me half an hour. Go and have a cup of tea, come back. I went in and I said, you've got to go now. And they went, we're not leaving. And I ended up, I, w- I went to the board and I pulled out all the leads of the board and pushed all the faders down. I went, off. Oh. <laughs> 
and get out. And then I had fisticuffs with Terence Trent Derby. Jesus. Yeah. So, and that was wishing well. Um, but lucky it was an SSL, so they could save the mix as far as they've of gone. Of course. On. But, you know, uh, that, that was a moment. But then me and Martin Webb beca- became very good friends. And um, I ended up managing Heaven 17. And, uh, and living with Martin uh, after I got divorced. And, um, yeah, so we're still sort of friends to this this day that didn't affect that yeah but he he bought his house off the back of that record yeah know? i mean being sort of privy to to seeing something like introducing the hardline being uh recorded um we've had a few people that have, have, have mentioned terence trent darby on on here and, and i'm a big fan of watching the old episodes of top of the pops yeah. uh, on a friday night and and just seeing him around the time of If You Let Me Stay and, and, and that, what ridiculous talent that man was. Like, what was it like to sort of be in the studio and hear them vocals being put down and, and you know... Well, he wasn't... Uh, I mean, I wasn't standing there in the studio whilst that was being mm. done. I mean, I was obviously wandering around and, yeah. you know, it would come up. Um, was you aware was, that there was, was something mix- a bit special and, there. He, and he was just mixing the studio. He was mixing. Yeah. He was using our room to mix. It was a good mix room. But, yeah, you know, I mean, I've been around quite a few recordings where you know something is a hit. Yeah. You know, you just feel... I was in the room when one of them was being written, which was You you Get What You Give by the New Radicals, right? Which to me is still an absolute classic. One of the greatest pop records ever made. I agree. You know, I should have put that down. It still sends shivers down my spine, that record. But I remember being... I I managed one of the songwriters, a guy called Rick Knowles. I managed him for 20-something years. And walking in the the room with with Greg, who was the singer of the New Radicals. In fact, it wasn't you know they weren't writing it for the New Radicals. They were just songwriters. They were songwriting partners. Yeah, he wrote Roller Coaster. Yeah, for Roller Keaton, Coaster, didn't he? There's another song, about, uh, another um, story about that as well. But but like walking in and seeing Greg lie on the studio, just making up the lyrics to this song, and suddenly going, "This is a hit." You know, you knew it was a hit. Right, and roller coaster likewise, and roller coaster. I remember um, playing that to a couple of A and R people for different artists, actually. And then, you know, um, we'd already promised it to to Ronan, and then one of the managing directors, who's, who will remain nameless, offered me a hundred thousand quid if I would not let Ronan do it, but give it to his artist yeah. to do it. Right. And we were like, oh, that's a lot of money, yeah. you know. Uh, but we couldn't, you know, you just yeah. couldn't. It was like committed, do you know what I mean? And it would have been disaster. But it was, but it was, but it was a big hit, you know. And it was a great song. Just before we get on to the next track, um, I just want to ask you a bit about Greg. So is, yeah. are you friends with Greg? And, and uh, you know, I, I don't know if anybody's friends with Greg. I mean, Greg is, uh, I know Greg. Did he yeah. self-sabotage his career? Absolutely. Because I've heard rumours that he sent faxes to everybody. No, he was like, he refused to go on tour. Yeah. You know, they could have been massive. But yeah. no, he, he, Greg's a, a very, you know, interesting character, um, amazing intellect, all the rest of it. But, you know, he's he's not an easy person and he definitely cut his nose off to spite his face. Yeah. Completely. Completely. Yeah. I've heard some but I think that period of, of him and Rick writing together, they were like the perfect writing partnership. Yeah. And they wrote some absolute classics. Yeah. Arthur Baker went to New York. Tell me all about this. Oh gosh, well that's going back a bit again, back to sort of eighty-five. 
uh, having to keep the studio busy, thinking, Christ, you know, Tony can't work 30 days a month, and this, but this room needs to be busy 30 days a month. I need to start finding some producers to work in this place and take, you know. So, and I'd heard this record, um, Planet Rock, which I was a big fan of, and just, you know, and Arthur Baker's name was like everywhere at the time, and, and it was like, and I thought, you know, I wonder if I get Arthur Baker to come and work in the studio. You know, that would be cool. Mm. That would give us the stamp of credit. Because at, at that point, Tony wasn't very cool. You yeah. know? His coolness has returned in buckets yeah. of spades. But at that moment, you know, that's why we were doing the Moody Blues. Yeah. And, um, and so I went, I know what, we've got to make this place cool. How can we do this? And we're like, if we get the sort of cutting edge of dance music and remixes in here, then that'll keep the place alive, you mm -hmm. know? So I got on a plane and I went to New York and... Uh, eventually tracked him down to, to his studio and he said, I can't talk, but I'm going to DJ at this place uh, tonight. And, and we went, it wasn't Paradise Garage, but it was one of the other ones, the tunnel or something like this. And we went to the, the tunnel that night and then in between sets, we had a talk and I basically persuaded him. I said, listen, you know, I could get you a bunch of remix work in London. If you come over, he says, I don't like flying. I really don't want to come over. Right. I was like, Look, let me work it out, you know, and, you know, it's a, it's a seven-hour flight. Yeah. You can do this, blah, blah, blah. There's a lot of money over there for you. And I went back and sort of sold Arthur Baker to all the record companies. And we had, like, all of a sudden, like, half a dozen mixes. And by it, they were top, you know, this is 1985. They were charging 30,000 quid a mix. Blimey. Right? Well, you make a record and a whole album yeah, for that course, now. Yeah. And uh, that was just for one remix, wow. you know, and that's the kind of money that was floating about at that time, and uh, which is amazing. And then, and and all of a sudden, I had a half a dozen of these booked, and he turned up with, with two engineers, and a, a tape editor, and we booked two studios, including the the one I had, Good Earth, and all of a sudden we were mixing half a dozen things like, you know, Living in a Box, Bros, all sorts of mm. amazing things, or not, depending on your point of view. Yeah. And um, and then. But I remember the, watching this tape edit. I'd never seen anything like it. This guy was... Arthur would just lay down passes onto, onto Half Inch. And the, the engineers were absolutely brilliant. I ended up managing them all. And then the tape editor would uh, chop these all up. And then you'd, it was like watching some sort of, you know, um, Victorian master of, of you know interiors design or whatever pulling all these bits of tape together off the wall and sticking them together and dozens of bits of tape and he knew where everything was and then creating a mix that's how they did it right by editing the tape together and you're watching this go this guy's a genius and Arthur wouldn't pay for a hotel for him and he was sleeping on the sofa and it was like I knew he was calling junior this and junior that and I was like you know mate you know you, you, you're, you're something and he was a very shy guy this guy junior Vasquez <laughs> Right, right. <laughs> For it was he, yeah, yeah, who would then later went on to become one of the greatest sort of remixers and DJs wow. and of of the age, you know, Junior Vasquez. Yeah. So that was quite something. He ain't sleeping on the sofa now. He ain't sleeping on the sofa now. <laughs> yeah. Track six. Yes. A favourite song from an artist from your home county. Oh, oh, my home county. Right. Oh, okay. Did you think country the same thought, as everyone else? I thought country. That's all right. right. That's all right. And even then, it's it's sort of uh, questionable because he would say he's probably would say he's Scottish, but he's not. Anyway, well, I mean, this is just a song that resonates with me, and I sure 
resonates with everybody who's ever heard it, really. I mean, I think if you hear it, you fall in love with it. Sure. Um, it's a beautiful record. It, John Martin and, and May You Never. And again, that could have, you know, been any one of two dozen songs, but that's the one I picked on at that moment. And John Martin is uh, sorely missed. I roaded for him once um, uh, at the Half Moon in Putney. <laughs> and he was... Uh, just a, an extraordinary character. What a voice, what a songwriter, absolute legend of British music. Mm -hmm. And uh, this song has never left me and never will. Well, aside from British music, I, I guess a huge part of your career um, has been, I, I guess, would you call it world music? Um, obviously, I just want to talk about the Africa Express projects yeah. and stuff. And so, uh, how did that come about and why? Uh, well, I was, as you now know, uh, a lover of, uh, of African music, and uh, particularly via the Fela Kuti route, but that led to me to discover different musics from other of the 54 African countries. People just think African music is mm -hmm. one thing. Boy, it isn't. It is a whole vast... Uh, endless catalogue of wonderfulness that yeah. is so varied and so different. Anyway, um, 19, uh, sorry, 2008, seven, I can't remember. No, 2005, there'd been this massive series of concerts around the world, uh, Live 8, which was the follow-up to Live 8. Mm -hmm. Live 8, which was all about dropping the African debt, yeah. right? Which was a very valid and and wonderful thing to uh, want to um, create political pressure to do so. And the usual suspects were rolled out. The Geldorfs, the Bonos, et cetera, et cetera, mm. and all of that. And there was a massive concert in Hyde Park. There was ones all over the world, by the way, but there was a massive one in Hyde Park. Madonna, The Who, Pink Floyd, you know, pretty good. All of this was amazing. And this is about Africa. And there were no African artists present apart from um, uh, uh, like one fleeting 30-second appearance. Um, and prior to that, there'd been some complaints that this was, was, you know, just not on. And they'd flown a bunch of African artists over to um, Cornwall and put on a gig in the uh, in Cornwall, which is kind of a bit disrespectful. They should have been on the main stage. Yeah. Anyway, there's a few people who felt like this. And I was in, um, bumped into uh, a, uh, a journalist, a guy called Ian Birrell, um, who is now a very well-known uh, journalist for, for, for a whole variety of reasons. And he uh, and I got talking about African music. And, you know, and it was, he was a big lover of all things uh, uh, of African music too. And he was uh, a colleague, he was a friend of, uh, of Damon Albarn. In fact, they had met in Mali at the Festival of the Desert in Mali okay. um, the year before or 18 months or so before, and they remained in contact. And Ian said, look, a few of us just think this is wrong, what happened at Live 8. And I went, damn right, this is wrong. Um, and we decided to get together and have a chat about it and see if there was a uh, something that we could create out of a discussion that might change the story <coughs> around African music. And a bunch of us got together and we talked about this idea of putting on 
a riposte to, to Live 8. Sure. Gig in, in, in Hyde Park with which would be a collaborative gig. African music musicians taking up the same space and in the, with the same level of headline as yeah. the Western artists with people playing together. And we worked towards that idea for maybe nine months, got some money from Chris Blackwell, Robert Plant gave us some money, and we started doing this, and Damon went at one point, hold on a second, right? Let's see if this works first. And what we decided to do was take a bunch of people out to Mali uh, in West Africa, to Bamako, and we rounded up 15 or so people, um, uh, Fat Boy Slim, Zane Lowe, uh, uh, one of the guys from The Roots, um, Valgus Sigerson, who's uh, uh, an associate of Sigaross, and, and a bunch of other people, and we went out to um, we went out to Bamako, mm-hmm. and we. In Bamako at that time were Salif Keita, Amadou and Mariam, Fatimata Diawara, all these incredible people were in town. And we ended up jamming or playing with them every night for a week. It was transformative. And we came back and realized that collaboration was possible. What do we do? Let's put on a, a, let's put on a show. So we rounded up a bunch of people and we went to the jam club in Brixton <coughs> and invited all our mates to come and be the audience. So the audience was all musicians. So the audience was Franz Ferdinand and the Kaiser Chiefs and X, Y, and Z, all these amazing. And then on the stage was Damon did his first ever gig with The Good, The Bad, and The Queen. So Paul Simon and wow. Audio Bullies, but then Amadou and Mariam, Sued Massey, Kanan, and, and nobody had rehearsed anything. We were literally going into the toilet of the jam club to rehearse. Kano went into the toilet with the guy from The Roots and wrote this song called London Town in the toilet. Fuck Ka- off, really? Came upstairs and played it on the stage. Right? Fucking hell. <laughs> so that, that was like the birth of Africa Express. And then we were invited to go and do it at Glastonbury. And we did it on the park stage. And me and Ian uh, and Damon wandered around Glastonbury for a couple of days beforehand, bumping into people like Amy Winehouse, who was a bit too out of it to do it, but various other people saying, just turn up to the park stage Saturday night. We're going to have a jam. They didn't know what they were turning up for. And they turn up, and we ended up doing an eight- or nine-hour jam, right? Non-stop rehearsing in the little tents at the back of the stage, throwing people on, completely unrehearsed. But it was magical. And that was the birth of Africa Express. And then since then, we've gone on to do shows around the globe, slightly more rehearsed, sometimes with even two days rehearsal beforehand, but maybe 100 musicians on stage. We've made albums, we've made films. In 2012, we took a train around the UK as part of the uh, Olympics. and that was funded by the Olympics, and, and we got Paul McCartney and John Paul Jones, and and together with Baba Mal and uh, Amadou and Mariam and Fatima, and we built a festival site by King Pines King's Cross Station, and did a like an, an eight and nine hour show, like nonstop, you know. So it's that kind of sort of energy, and That's and incredible. and it's it's it's. I like to think that it's changed the. Th- thinking around African music to a degree where it's just been given a different context. And of course, since that's happened, you've had the rise of everything, nothing to do with us, but the rise of everything that's gone on with Nigerian, young Nigerian music breaking into the mainstream Mm -hmm. and that whole change. But 
you know, a lot of the artists, the British and American artists and Western artists who've been a part of Africa Express have incorporated African musicians in their recordings, in their playing. Uh, Gruff Reese has just released an album. We took him down to South Africa last year to Johannesburg. We recorded an Africa Express album down there. He then got one of the South African Quam uh, guys to produce his new album, which has just come out this week. That's and it's wonderful. phenomenal. Um, so, you know, Africa Express is a, a labor of love, but, you know, yeah, a big one. Superb. Um, final track. It's Gosh. your chance to play um, DJ Stephen. Yes. Um, and it's uh, the song that many may not know that you would like them to hear. Right. Uh, well, the one I chose um, is one of the greatest American songwriters, amazing man. I've met him a couple of times. Um, people will know him better for the, his production work because, of course, he produced Bat Out of Hell. Mm -hmm. God forgive him for that because <laughs> not, not my favourite piece of music no. by Meatloaf. But he's an amazing songwriter. And if you know uh, anything about the great American sort of songbook, he's right in the middle of it. And um, this is Todd Rundgren and Can We Still Be Friends. Okay. What can people expect from that? Again, it's emotional. Uh, it's about a breakup, uh, and it, everything's in the title, isn't it? Really, okay. you know. And um, it's a really special song. Um, he, he he played everything on it. He wrote everything, played everything: the drums, the keyboard, the bass, everything. He recorded it all himself. Uh, the guy is an absolute genius, okay. and um, he's still touring. Uh, saw him play last year. Phenomenal. Um, still as lively and energetic and as funny as ever. He's the uh, father of Liv Tyler. That's right. Not a lot of people know that. Uh, but he's, uh, he's, a, he's a special man, and um, the music speaks for itself. Well, all these songs are going to be on the, uh, the Spotify playlist that accompany uh, the release of this podcast, so people can go and check out all the songs that we've been speaking about today. What's happening now, Stephen? Well, I'm off to Korea. Uh, we started a little festival in the DMZ, uh, called the DMZ Peace Train Festival, uh, which I helped put together last year. I also started some music festivals in India, uh, which are now in the 10th year. So I go from Korea then to India, um, where we've had you know everybody from Flying Lotus to Mark Ronson's Subtract, The Wailers, Megadeth, um, and even more tasteful things than that. Yeah. Uh, but um, so the next couple of months are about that and, and right now I'm late for a meeting where I've got to go and discuss a little jazz festival that we're putting on in March in London called One Fest that Shabaka Hutchins is curating at Earth in Hackney in March go and buy your tickets now it'll be very good wonderful I'll let you get off Stephen thank you ever so much absolute pleasure so there you have it that was uh, the wonderful Stephen Budd. Uh, I told you that he's been on quite a journey, and uh, I wasn't lying, right? Um, there were so many things that um, I, I really wanted to just spiral off and, and, and ask a million and one questions, but I was aware that, obviously, Stephen's a very busy man, and uh, and we only had a, a window of just over the hour. Uh, so I'm, I'm sure, hopefully, at some point, I'll get Stephen back on, and we'll... We'll, we'll, we'll delve deeper into um, some of the other bits and pieces that that we didn't get a chance to explore fully in, in, in this episode. But I think you had more than your fair share of um, 
of, of incredible music and uh, and and tip top chat from a an absolute gentleman. Um, so thank you ever so much for listening. Um, I'll be back next week with another episode. If you can't wait that long, head over to Patreon.com, sign up, and um, you can get a weekly fix of um, tunes and chat from me. I put up a, a standalone episode on Patreon each week. So if you go over there, there's probably thirty or forty shows you can. Um, work your way back through there but please have a look in the back catalogue of um, this as well because there's a multitude of fascinating chats with really really interesting people um, and yeah that's it just a quick shout out before I, I, I sign off from this um, podbiblemag.com is the magazine that Scroobius Pip and my name is Adam myself do and it's also got a podcast now and that podcast features all your favourite podcasters talking about all the podcasts that they like to listen to and their own podcast as well um so that's um all available on all the usual platforms and the magazine is there to be read as well if you haven't got a print copy just head over to podbiblemag.com and you can uh, find out all you need to know about the world of podcasting there um have a lovely week and i'll see you again next time bye bye oh yeah sorry i've butted in yet again i just want to quickly tell you about this magazine. It's called Pod Bible. Now Pod Bible is the new essential guide to podcasts. It's put together alongside Spotify and Acast and it's a one-stop shop to tell you all about the podcasts you maybe know about but definitely about a lot of the podcasts that you probably don't know about that we think you should know about. I mean in the first edition there's interviews with Adam Buxton, interviews with Craig Parkinson, um, there's features on Jade Adams, and there's just an abundance of information about so many exciting podcasts that are out there. Also, Spotify have given us these amazing little codes. So if you do get a print copy, you can just turn on your Spotify on your phone, scan the little code, and it just automatically opens up the podcast on your listening device. How good's that? If you haven't managed to get a print copy, then just go over to www.podbiblemag.com and read it online because the digital version is all over there and it's all free. So every other month there'll be a new edition out. So go and have a look and support us on the social medias as well. Podbiblemag.com It's Off The Beat and Track Podcast on the Distraction Pieces Network. With me, Stu Whiffin. 
Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.